Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to GSA on Aging. Welcome to today's episode of the Gerontological Society of America's podcast series, where we learn about aging from leading experts. I'm Kirsten Porazini, Professor of Nursing and Dean of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire, and your guest host for this episode. The GSA on Aging podcast series is supported by the GSA Innovation Fund. Today's podcast is co-sponsored by the Social Research Policy and Practice and Health Sciences sections of the Gerontological Society of America. This episode is part one in a series of podcasts where we are exploring the current crisis in residential long-term care staffing, much of which was highlighted whether the news media, our own personal experiences during COVID, and as we transition to experience the long tail of COVID, what's striking is how many of these challenges continue to persist. We are joined today by two leading experts in the field who've spent their careers thinking about how to advance quality of life and thriving in residential long-term care settings and the core role that staff play in full partners in not only a place to experience high quality of care and quality of life, but also a place of choice to work and feel meaningfulness in your in as a long-term care staff member. We will be joined by Professor Barb Bowers, Professor Emerita from the University of Wisconsin School of Nursing and current chair of the Advancing Excellence in Long-Term Care Collaborative. I'm also joined by Professor Kathy Majolton, Senior Scientist at the Kite Research Institute at Toronto Rehabilitation Institute and Professor the Lawrence S. Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing in at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Barb and Kathy. So delighted to have both of you joining us today. Great. It's great to be here. To start, I know we would be really interested in just understanding more about what's been happening in long-term care that was really exacerbated during the pandemic. Barb? Yeah, sure. I can take that one. This is what we have seen during the pandemic is nothing new. It's simply something made a little bit worse or maybe a lot worse and a lot more transparent, a lot more visible to the public and to policymakers. So in that sense, it's, I think, been good to shine a light on things, even though I can't say what's happened during COVID in long-term care has been a good thing. I think the media has certainly covered a lot of what's happened there. So let me just give you a little bit of background on some of the issues, staffing issues that preceded the, the pandemic. So workforce development has been a challenge in long-term care. Staffing has always been insufficient. That's been an ongoing debate and controversy for decades with people on both sides of the debate. And the biggest opposition to that is that they simply can't, there's simply not enough workers. And that has clearly gotten worse during the pandemic and has continued. We have not recovered from the loss of staff. Thousands of people, frontline staff and nurses, have left long-term care since the pandemic started. But this is not a new phenomenon. The turnover rates prior to that were 
between 50 and 100%, sometimes higher in long-term care settings. I mean, if you had an ter- annual turnover rate of less than 40%, you were considered doing pretty well. And that that's just not a sustainable statistic. So that's been a problem since I've been reading articles on this since the 1980s. So certainly nothing new. There's been a lot of effort to increase the staffing to make mandatory staffing levels, which is something the Biden administration is looking at. Still a lot of opposition. And again, that's primarily due to cost reimbursement, what it would cost to get a a much more sufficient staff, but also where we're going to find those people. Fewer and fewer people are interested in going into this work. Recruitment isn't the biggest issue or hasn't been in the past. It's retention. When you're losing 60, 70% of your staff, recruitment doesn't actually help you much because there's a big hole in the bottom of the boat. The reasons for that haven't changed. Pay, workers in long-term care get less pay than people who do, I would have to say, less difficult work in hospital settings and other places as they get about 70 to 80% of the pay. They often have to work two jobs in order to make ends meet, which was one of the problems during the pandemic is workers working multiple jobs, multiple places, which of course spread COVID around from place to place. And I think there's been a lot of research on how to reduce turnover, not changed much since the 80s and 90s, and we're simply not using the information that we have. So that's a real real problem. We don't know all the fixes, but we know a lot of them and they have not been implemented. So in in a sense, kind of low-hanging fruit there. And of course, policymakers have to be willing to put more money into long-term care. And just a a couple other things I think are really important is it's important to understand that the people who go into long-term care are sicker and more complicated than they used to be. So even if our staffing stayed the same, it wouldn't be good enough. And that also means that our staff are not sufficiently educated. We know that nursing school does not prepare people for the complexity of this population. And unlike hospitals that usually require a year of a residency program, many of them do, to recognizing that nurses need a lot more education, coaching, supervision in order to become fully functioning. In long-term care, they get thrown in day one and are absolutely not prepared for it with very little backup in those settings. Benefits are less. And I think the last thing I'll say about this in terms of what was going on before is the health disparities. Health disparities that people see in minority populations and the racism that is experienced by staff. We're just now recognizing that, but haven't really come to terms with it yet. I know Advancing Excellent has a project we're working on with PHI to develop educational materials for administrators and directors of nursing and long-term care settings to deal with the racism that a lot of staff experience, sometimes from residents, sometimes from families. Residents, they staff often say, well, they can't help it. This is how they grew up. They are confused. On the other hand, there's no recognition usually in settings that this is really hard to hear from residents who you've been helping, and then they turn around and say something that's really very hurtful. So these problems have been there for a long time. So again, I think shining a light on them has some benefit. Thanks, Barb. So you've really mapped out some really significant challenges and across the kind of the ecosystem of long-term care staffing. And it sounds like many challenges that have been longstanding. You've also described, you know, some really important opportunities to move forward to an environment that we 
both staff, family members, and residents really would thrive. You talked about we've learned a lot. It's a matter of how we figure out how to draw upon these lessons and implement what we've learned. It sounds both really important, but also hopeful. Well, we, yes, we are all hopeful now. And let's hope that that goes somewhere. Excellent. So, so I can understand, Kathy, a little bit more about given this context and all these really critical dimensions and issues that Barb's outlined, what, how did this translate to what we, what we experienced during COVID? So great point. Remember, we already had these precarious work conditions and Barb mentioned some of them, the part-time employment, the heavy workloads because of our staffing, punitive measures, you know, even related to sick time. But what happened and we have not seen before is this moral distress that our staff experienced during COVID-19. The grief, the guilt, the stress of losing residents they care for for many years, the moral injury related to working under high pressure and possibly violating some of their own codes of ethics because there weren't enough staff. What needs to be addressed? And that is probably why we are seeing many of our staff leaving long-term care. They develop, the reason why they work in these environments, Barb and I have done a lot of research in this area, is because of their relationship with these residents. So it was very upsetting to see them suffer and die. I think this is what we're seeing now in, in terms of we need to take care of the staff that are remaining. Many of the residents that had cognitive impairment, as you know, were isolated because we were concerned about them tr transmitting the, the virus, and so it was difficult on them and the staff. We also were, were interested in seeing who... Who and we're not even sure who decided was allowed to be in the house during COVID. And as you know, there were some policy rules, regulations, of course, direct care workers, and they're the individuals that are often caring, providing most of the care to our residents. And then nurses are usually the charge nurses, and Barb spoke a little bit about that. And there's that supervisory relationship that's key to quality and, and also making sure we retain our staff. It's how well our supervisors are taking care of our direct care workers. They were not in-house dietitians, of course, housekeepers, eventually activity recs and managers like the director of nursing. They were the, the individuals that were allowed in the house. You'll note I mentioned family doctors or physicians in many of the homes were not allowed entry. And that's because many of them have other responsibilities elsewhere. They don't usually work full-time in nursing homes in the U.S. or in Canada. Some of them are European countries. That, that is a model, but not here. Holland is an example, for instance. So what would happen is that would mean they'd have other responsibilities until they were asked to work virtually in the home. The other thing we know is directed nursing was allowed, of course, in the building. And usually there's in, in Canada, like for instance, we're allowed to have one RN in the building. And usually it is the director of nursing. And they were short-staffed because they often would get sick. But we also realized the role of director of nursing is actually almost unrealistic, what we expect that for individual to do. They're also very young and inexperienced, so it's very hard during something like COVID if you don't have that good leadership skills to actually manage. And by the way, there is very little training required to go into that role. So that's the next thing. We continue to put people in roles, but we don't provide the actual training. And that really came to light during COVID-19. Good intentions, but also the silos. We work in silos in most of our countries. So nursing homes are separate from acute care facilities, and when we need it, some help from our acute care. They were dealing with their own crisis, and so it was sometimes difficult to get our clients from our nursing homes into acute care if that was required into eMERGE. So that is what, for some of the other issues that occurred during the pandemic. 
Thank you, Kathy. So in the context of all of these numerous longstanding challenges, a situation where we, we may understand and have kind of developed opportunities to improve care, to improve quality of work life, it, it sounds what you've described is a pretty profound shift during COVID that really both exacerbated these underlying challenges, but made us think differently a little bit about you know who who might be doing what in the in in a particular residential long-term care setting and who was there who wasn't there maybe opportunities to recognize what different individuals may have been contributing and maybe under acknowledged so how how does this translate into a way forward what did we learn from the pandemic Kathy yeah so I think the question is who should be in the house I think we've staffed the majority of our homes to provide social care for our long-stay residents, but we've forgotten the com- complexity of the clients, as Barbara mentioned. They need health care um, because they have complex health issues. It, you're no longer coming in having one and tea. This is 25 years ago. It, it, actually, most clients are dependent on care. But in order to, to maintain their physical and social, emotional, and cognitive function, we need to be able to assess and intervene to help them maintain their level of functioning as long as possible and regain any lost function that they may have. And then again, again, adapt to any lost function. They are going to be dying. So there's highly skilled individuals are required to do these type of assessments. We need also to be open to innovation and technologies to help and support and train our staff so that they're able to kind of provide this kind of care that our clients require. There is, we, during COVID-19, what we also realized is the greater need for supporting end-of-life care. And we need rehab staff and also access to consultants to provide the kind of care that these, our residents require. So we really feel that our educational programs are not preparing the nurses to work in this environment. We don't have the training required, and we saw that again during COVID-19. I mean, especially since we were doing virtual visits, we needed our staff to do very physical, uh, thorough physical assessments, and some of them needed some assistance to get that done. And at the end, we also realized the importance of having supervisors really caring for the staff to help them thrive. And we need to teach our charge nurses, which are often the regulated nurses, our RNs, um, LPNs, on how to actually provide supportive supervision. What does that look like? How do we actually care for staff? How can we be reliable, dependable? When we have questions, we're there for you. Again, that's wonderful, but then we have to talk about numbers. We can only supervise if we have for instance, you know, maybe, you know, one to 20. And, and right now in nursing homes, we're looking at, you know, one RN in the building and there could be about 50 to 60 staff. So it's, we have, again, crazy kind of uh, ratios that are maybe making it very difficult to do the job well. And I think the last thing that I think on our highlight that we learned from our pandemic is some nursing homes actually survived, went, got through this and did a really, really good job. But we really have a lack of data across our respective countries to comprehensively understand why some homes manage well while others did not. The data that exists is uneven and it sometimes omits core contextual issues and factors, especially around our workforce, that limits then our the ability to compare across countries what worked and what didn't work. So I think we need to focus on that. And as we also talked about, we need better integrated healthcare systems. So when we pick up the phone, someone from acute care, maybe we're linked to a acute care besides, can actually assist us when required. So I think that's important. 
Thanks, Kathy. I found that, you know, finding that really helpful to think about just comprehensively how we think about staffing. You also raised some really important issues related to data and just understanding who's in the house. And it sounds like our capacity to really learn across from one residential long-term care setting to another, from one country to another, is currently a little bit limited without, without our kind of a data infrastructure. Barb, I'm curious, one aspect that Kathy didn't talk about so much was the role of families. Could you tell us a little bit more about kind of what, what did we learn in terms of families? Yeah, I think we learned a fair amount in terms of families. For one thing, as I think Kathy mentioned, it was really distressing for the staff to see the disconnection between families and residents. I mean, they always knew how important families were, but this certainly highlighted it. But I think one of the things that was also interesting is the loss of families required actually an increase in staff from what had been there before. Everyone knew that families were helping, but I think the extent to which families were actually providing care was probably a surprise, at least to some people. So you take the families out of the equation, families who come in and help with feeding, dressing, just spending time with people, keeping people who are somewhat confused, oriented and engaged in life. Uh, All of a sudden they're gone. And so that meant that the staff had to step in and do that work. And of course they could never replace families, but they had to do things like figure out how to help residents use iPads when that was a possibility. That took more time again, and it was confusing for the staff. And add to that, we heard from a lot of direct care staff and recreation staff who were often involved in this, recreation activity staff, that wearing masks with residents who had dementia and then giving them an iPad was incredibly confusing for people who had mild to moderate dementia. So that was a, a serious problem. Families were pretty creative at some of them in terms of figuring out how to connect with families. You know, we had one woman who is part of our advancing excellence team whose husband was in a nursing home, couldn't see him. So she got a job as a dishwasher there. And there are lots of examples of families who were desperate to make those connections. But of course, there were a lot of families who could not. So I, I think we didn't really learn a lot new. It just emphasized the fact that families are vital emotionally and in terms of the care, although I think we need to be careful to not count families as part of the staff. We shouldn't assume that they're going to do all that. Well, many would say that we hit a really kind of watershed moment in terms of thinking about how to advance quality in residential long-term care settings, both for families, residents, and people who care for residents, right? I mean, I think you both really helped us to understand some of the key longstanding issues, what that looked like during COVID, and some critical lessons. We know that there's been a lot of really important policy level discussion now that seems to echo much of what both of you have have shared. Um, We love to hear a little bit more from either one of you about some of the key kind of, whether it's in the United States or Canada, some of the key policy reports and initiatives to really try to leverage this unique moment. And I I think just energy to try to 
turn a new page and and make residential long-term care what we want and what we all, our shared commitment to advancing thriving in long-term care. Kathy? Sure. So one of the things we're looking at in Ontario is trying to get a you know, four hours a day of care, a staff care for, for our residents. So we'll see if that's able to happen. And we're hoping to do that each year, just increasing the number of hours we're able to provide. One other thing that's happened in Ontario specifically, and this is related to some of the work that um, my team and I were doing, but also the evidence before that came before, and that's the important role of the nurse practitioner in long-term care homes. So when we think about new models of care, we think about, okay, who needs to be in the house as we spoke about. And because of the work we were that I was doing with some of our nurse practitioners, when I interviewed them, I found out a few things. And they were able to act as medical directors. There was an emergency act that occurred because, again, I was telling you some, some of our physicians were not able to actually go into the homes. And we, uh, so the MPs did go into the homes. And actually, they were the most responsible provider. And I want to tell you that they're, they're, te- they're advanced practice nurses. They're graduate prepared registered nurses. They typically have a master's of nursing or a doctor of nursing practice degree. They specialize often in adults' gerontology care. This role was actually established in the 60s in the U.S. and Canada and really highlighted, and this was because of a shortage of physicians, particularly in rural areas. And just to let you know that they're actually able to diagnose, prescribe medications, perform medical procedures as appropriate to their training and scope of practice guidelines. And due to their nursing background and the accurate re-education, entities have a strong focus on advanced nursing skills and and also psychosocial care, resident family education, problem solving, and engaging families, care partners. And these are things that are missing currently, actually, in our nursing homes. I couldn't help but think, my goodness, what a wonderful solution. If we had more NPs in these long-term care facilities, I was lucky enough to go speak to the Long-Term Care Commission in Ontario, because there were a lot of commissions that were developed, and I basically brought this evidence to their plus. 20 years of experience of research that actually has looked at NPs and nursing homes to say that they need to, they belong. We need to figure out what a best MP MD collaborative model is. And the wonderful thing is the commissioner actually agreed. And we're now going to have 200 new nurse practitioners in Ontario starting in 2023. So there's a wonderful example of how evidence can influence policy. And what we're doing now is we're working with our physician colleagues to try to figure out what is the best MP MD collaborative model moving forward. In, in Ontario, because we want to make sure the nursing homes are ready for our NPs. And so I think they also showed us how they could mentor the staff. I talked about having to do very good physical assessment skills. And again, if you haven't had to do that, because we have not had COVID-19 before, really good physical assessments. So they were able to mentor staff, show them the way. They were able to kind of work with families uh, to make sure we had end-of-life care happening and mentored our of course, the staff to make sure that was being done because all of this isn't the NP role. Of course, it can also be the RN role and those in the building, but we need sometimes some guidance. And so in the end, uh, that will probably be two major things going through, the staffing ratios hopefully increasing and also more nurse practitioners in the building. Thank you, Kathy. What an exceptional and exciting step forward and what a powerful example of bringing together the research, the practice, drawing upon lessons learned during COVID to really affect change. Thank you. Barb, I know that the U.S. National Academies of Science 
Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine recently released a consensus study report on the national imperative to improve nursing health quality. How does that align with some of what we've been talking about today and really in particular thinking about new models of care that may emerge here in the U.S.? Yeah, important question. And at the same time, just about the same week, I think maybe a week later, the White House in the U.S. released what they called a fact sheet on long-term care issues. And it, it kind of paralleled what the um, National Academy's report said, but a, a little bit more focused. And the things that they highlighted, I, I go through just a few of those. One was the reimbursement and the funding mechanisms and how we have, I, I'm not sure what it is in Canada, but in the U.S., unfortunately, about 80% of our homes are for-profit. And when I started in this in the 80s, it was just the reverse, not for-profit. And we know from research over the years that for-profit homes have higher turnover, lower staffing, fewer benefits provided for the staff. So I know that's a, a highly contested area, and there will be a lot of people, certainly from the for-profit side of the industry, who will disagree with me. But the evidence is fairly clear that in particular, when they have a lot of horizontal organizations where you have a horizontal integration of, let's say, a nursing home that also has a, the whoever owns it also owns laboratory or pharmaceutical industry, that there's a lot of money that is pulled out of long-term care. And I don't think we fund it well enough to have a lot of profits removed, extracted along the way. There's just not enough there to begin with. There are also conversations then about raising the amount that's reimbursed for Medicaid patients, people who are low income and on government subsidies in long-term care. It's now not at the rate that it actually costs to provide the care. So they have to find all sorts of ways to supplement that in order to just maintain the organization. And the staffing is less there. So there's a lot of I think regulation that needs to be passed in terms of how ownership works, how many horizontal connections is acceptable, and how much money can be pulled out. So those are complicated reimbursement issues. At the same time, of course, if the organizations that are generating a profit pull out, then you know, with 80% of the firms in for-profit organizations, we've got a little bit of a challenge there. So, and there are a lot of homes in the U.S. that have gone out of business in the last year. It's really accelerated. So that's a problem. I think the other thing that's been looked at is, is models of care. And that's in the NASEN report, very focused discussion of that, and also mentioned in the by the White House fact sheet. And that is about finding models of care that are going to be more efficient and effective in providing good quality care. And Kathy's already talked about a few of those, but there are culture change models, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but across the world that are doing things a bit differently. And one of the things that actually is relevant to COVID and also relevant to quality of life certainly, is not having multiple people in the same room. I mean, can you imagine being 80, 90 years old and all of a sudden having a roommate in your room, someone who you don't know, don't share anything with, maybe don't have anything in common with, nothing to talk about. They like to have the television on at the time that you like to sleep. It just, just seems to me, has always seemed a bit strange to have two strangers in a room together. And that certainly has accelerated the spread of COVID. Um, the physical layout of homes was not set up 
to manage a, a pandemic or an epidemic inside the home. And I just wanted to follow up on something Kathy said too, that I think is important. We are not looking anywhere near the the creative level that Canada is in terms of how to use nurse practitioners. But we've had nurse practitioners in long-term care settings for a long time. There are reimbursement challenges to that in that the nursing homes cannot hire nurse practitioners and then get government reimbursement for the care that they provide. They can, however, be reimbursed if they work for an entity outside, for example, a, a practice of primary care providers. So that's the model that a lot have used. And although the evidence isn't great, we don't have data, there are certainly indications from the research that we have and some of the research we did with the greenhouse program that if you have a single provider, a nurse practitioner or a physician who spends a lot of time in the same home, gets to know the staff, gets to know the residents, that the outcomes are better, the staff's happier, the physicians or nurse practitioners who are doing that sort of primary care feel much more informed and the outcomes are much better. There's also fewer hospitalizations because when you know a patient, you're less likely to hospitalize them than if you hear the same report about someone who you don't have any information about, which is a kind of reasonable thing to do. The other thing that some of these models are doing is empowering the direct care staff. And Kathy talked about the supervision, which I think is a really important issue. In the, just use an example, in the greenhouse homes and other culture change models, the direct care staff, the CNAs, are given a lot more responsibility for managing their schedules, managing their time, dividing the work. And where they connect with the nurses is around the clinical issues, not around all the other ancillary issues. The nurses love not having responsibility for those things, and the direct care workers feel very empowered and respected by being able to manage those things on their own. So, so those are other things that I think we really need to look at. In addition to, uh, unfortunately, our requirements for training direct care staff have actually dropped in a number of places, dropped to the minimum required by law, which is absolutely insufficient for the direct care staff. And I, would, I, I think that's something that needs to be addressed, not just prior to people starting work, but we all know as educators that you learn better when you are when you've had some experience. You have some experience with what you're learning about, so you have a context to put it in. And so, having education of direct care staff and nurses along the way that's really substantial and focused on the kind of things that they need to provide care is something that we don't do now, and I think it's vital. I'm just going to add to that, Barb, because what we found with some of our nurse practitioners is the mentoring of direct care workers, but also the RNs. And I think that being there, like one of the things I've done also in my life, many intervention studies, and it's very difficult to try to influence that practices. And I think if you have somebody actually on site, full-time who you learn to trust, it's amazing how you can sort of move mountains and change practices. And I think that's what we saw with some of our nurse practitioners who gained the trust of staff. They were able to bring in best practices, great end-of-life care for instance, and that's important because the training that happens often in Canada is you're sitting in front of a screen and you push play, and then after you have a quiz. And I'm not convinced that's changing any practices because at the end of the day, you have to be able to take that information and contextualize it to the, the resident in front of you. And it's very difficult to do that. And that's where we need somebody to do some more of that um, working beside. And I think actually influencing practice is incredibly challenging. And if you have a mentor, like an MP and a practice nurse, I think we see differences in outcomes. And in fact, I think we have some evidence of that. 
I also think what one of the things we've done recently to try to make sure we're supporting staff is team huddles. The importance of making sure everyone is timely communication, people are around problem solving exactly like Barb's point. The director of workshop can have the answers. We have to listen to them. So, but we have to provide a forum for this to happen. So perhaps a team huddle with somebody leading and we just didn't finish the study with the nurse practitioner leading it. We had great outcomes and it helped us reduce some of the moral distress staff were dealing with because we're also asking them about their own mental health. And I think we have to start doing that, providing much more uh, focus on stress management, meeting staff's basic needs, and promoting activities to support their health and well-being. That has to be a focus moving forward to retain our staff and to keep them informed and empowered. And that's, I want to just add those comments. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. I think both of you have really outlined quite clearly a really compelling case for how we um, come together as a community with tending to the relationships, ensuring that that clinical expertise is really fully embedded in the day-to-day interactions and connections, and that it really is about advancing capacity in how nursing home staff are supported in self-care and wellness and how they're, uh, we support one another in fully engaging families in honoring residents, what matters to them and ensuring that that expertise is available on the front lines. I think you know, that's a lot of really straightforward ways in which that could be implemented. And that, again, I find very encouraging. Any closing thoughts as we come to the end of our podcast today? I think I'm just going to pick up on something that Kathy said as my closing remark. And I think we need to think carefully about how to support nursing home staff as a team, a real functioning team. And that includes good communication. We have eliminated many of the ways that we know good communication flows and how it's effective. For example, in the U.S., most homes have no time, no shift overlap. So shift to shift report often doesn't happen. They rely on people going to the chart and reading things, which is a much more difficult thing to do. So important information gets lost from one shift to another. I think the siloing of workers and the lack of working together as a team means other information isn't shared. And there's no teachable moments so much like the nurses and the CNAs working together more closely on clinical issues would allow for those teachable moments, which which we've seen in some research is vital for CNAs to both feel respected, empowered, and to be better eyes and ears to bring problems to nurses early before it develops into a serious problem. So that's the only thing I think we haven't written. Well, there's probably others, but one of the things we haven't talked about that I think is really important is to think about how our models of care facilitate not just respect for all the workers, but also really effective communication. Thanks, Bob. So honoring what each person brings of their knowledge of the, of the resident and working together as a team to make sure that information is available to everyone. So that the right staff is available, right, to meet the, the needs of the residents. I think we need to look at these new models of care that include NPs, MDs, and the collaborative models that are best suited and reduce any barriers to that. And I think none of this is going to happen without strong leadership. And I think we've totally underemphasized the importance of having a really adaptive leader. They were the ones that survived this. They were able to provide 
you know, the vision for these collaborative teams and new models. And we have continued to forget to really provide the right amount of support for these leaders in these homes. And I think we really have to think about that. And I, I want to sort of end with, you know, nurses and nursing assistants working in nursing homes are invaluable members of society. And working in these care environments where many others are unwilling to work. And I think there are the key messages that we need to bring to the forefront of the critical role of leaders and their capacity to effectively lead and support these staff. Um, and we want to thank all staff working in nursing homes. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I think nursing home workers have suffered from bad PR out there, been blamed for some of the problems. These are some of the hardest working, most committed, devoted people who often went to work at the risk of their own lives and just continued on because of their commitment to the residents. So thank you to all of them. I think that's an excellent place to stop and really important take-home message. Yes, we to really reflect on the appreciation that we have for staff, families, and residents throughout COVID and today. And I think each of us will have, you've shared with us many key points that help us all think about how we can be part of the solution to improving quality of care and quality of life for staff, families, and residents. So again, thank you. On behalf of the Social Research Policy Practice and Health Sciences Sections of the Gerontological Society of America, thank you for joining us today. And to our listeners, I hope you will be as inspired as I am to continue to strive forward to improve quality. And we look forward to our next podcast in this series. Thank you. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.